and I, I know that um, it, it seemed to me that the, the the people we were working with, people in the prison, people in Broadmoor, had been on the receiving end of systemic failure on a massive scale in the family, the education service, social services, the care system, the criminal justice system, youth services, health, mental health services. It was like every system had failed in some ways to help these people before they ended up doing something terrible. Um, and it's really given me a perspective on mental health now, which is something to do with how we individualize problems in people, even though they are suffering from a lot of systemic failure, uh, whether it's economic, whether it's to do with oppression, uh, whether it's whether it's to do with employment, whether it's to do with the way that we construct family life in our society, all of these things contribute to people's mental ill health. And we say you've got a personality disorder, or you you you've got schizophrenia, or you've got bipolar disorder, or something like that. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today we're meeting with uh, Jeff Hopping. Welcome, welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Je Jeff started his mental health career as a psychiatric nurse and then subsequently became a mental health social worker. In, his late, in the late 80s, his social work career took a turn when he found himself working in the HIV AIDS pandemic in West London. It was during that time that he was fortunate enough to start doing some training with the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation in the USA. And it was this seminal experience that started his journey to become a psychotherapist. He trained initially at the Metanoia Institute and qualified as a clinical transactional analyst. And in 1996, he, uh, he then went on to train as a teaching and supervising transactional analyst in 2003. He also trained and qualified as a psychoanalytic psychotherapist with the Forum for Independent Psychotherapists and did a one-year supervision diploma course at the SAP, Society for Analytical Psychotherapists, which is a Jungian training. He had a private practice in South London for 20 years. And in 2005, he became a consultant psychotherapist at a high security prison in their therapeutic wing. Following his retirement from the prison in 2013, he developed a supervision practice and has been a tutor at the Metanoia Institute, TA East and the Link Centre, where he has recently become a, a director. Jeff started ministry training with the One Spirit Foundation and was ordained in July 2021. He's passionate about bringing a spiritual dimension to psychotherapy education, believing that the interface between the two is both exciting and 
essential. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Really good to have you on, Jeff, and really good to see you again after working you with too. you for eight, eight years, um, seeing each other on a on a daily basis. Um, yeah. And yeah, very nice to catch up again. But just listening back to your um your career overall, Jeff, and wondering about some of the decisions you made and how your how your career path took so many twists and turns, because it seems almost like you might be a whole multidisciplinary team in one person. Well, actually, I knew at a very young age I wanted to work with people and I had a couple of false starts, but I always knew I was I was a people person and I didn't come from a, a background where people did that. I mean, I came from a background of engineers and factory workers and so on. And so I happened to a friend of mine said, um, have you have you thought about working at Borough Court, which was a hospital in Reading? And uh, I must admit I hadn't. Um, anyway, I, I contacted them. This was the 70s. Um, chief, well, they put me through to the chief nursing officer who spoke to me immediately, which wouldn't happen today. He asked me what my qualifications were and offered me a job and said, could you start on Monday? Uh, I said, well, I'd kind of like to see the place first. To which he said, um, well, I'll be running the bingo tomorrow night. Why don't you join me? So I went up to the hospital and I met all these lovely patients who were playing bingo. And I thought this is going to be a really nice place to work, you know. Uh, and I did. Um, I think I had to give a week's notice where I was working. So, but I did start there very quickly. No, no, um, no vetting procedures. I don't think there were any references and they put me straight on a ward where <clears throat> it was adolescent boys and girls. Uh, well, yeah, they were in their adolescence. And um, there was definitely no bingo being played. It was a complete shock to me. Um, but it appealed to me because I thought I'm going to get a, a profession. I'm going to get an education. And it was uh, it really suited my personality to be a nurse, you know, moving from ward to ward, meeting different people, facing different difficult, demanding, challenging situations, but nevertheless, huge variety. And I really, I really loved it. Um, and after I'd qualified, I then went to work at Broadmoor to do a post-graduation psychiatric nurse training from uh, the one that I had done. Um, Broadmoor didn't suit me in the 70s. It was a diff very difficult place to work. Um, but nevertheless, I learned a huge amount whilst I was there. And then fortuitously, fortuitously was offered a charge nurse position in a place called Leavesden, which is one of the original LCC, I suppose the asylums that had originally 3,000 patients there. It was an enormous place north of Watford and I'd seen Leavesden on Panorama Leavesden was um opened its doors to the BBC and said come in and have a look and we'll show you what working in these hospitals is like and what the pressures are and what the challenges are and I'd seen that documentary and I thought this is a place that has some integrity 
that they're not trying to hide, they're trying to be transparent about the limitations of working in such a place. Anyway, um, I was offered a job there, and at the age of 23, they, uh, I was a charge nurse on what is now a regional secure unit, which seems unthinkable these days, but um, that's how it was. And um, again, I, I, I thought Leaveston was a place of uh, a lot of integrity and a lot of love. And uh, I have very, very good memories of it. And of course, it wasn't perfect. It was very far from it. Um, and then having been a charge nurse on, on the secure unit for about four years, uh, I had the opportunity to go and work in the local community. And so I became a community nurse attached to a consultant psychiatrist and worked in the borough of Hounslow. Um, well, I think I had a caseload of about 300. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but I could see that the move was going to be away from the institutions into the community. Um, and that's why I was kind of interested to do that job. Uh, at the same time, Leavesden was closing. And that was very sad. And I think it was quite demoralising for staff, who, especially those, I was very young, but those who put their lives and, you know, their heart and souls into it. I mean, to see it close in the way that it did would have been, well, it was sad. It was sad for everybody. Not saying it was wrong, but it was definitely a sad process to go through. So having worked in the community, I could see that was the way forward. And I happened to see a, a job advertised in one of the London boroughs for someone to run a residential care home. I applied for that and got it. Uh, and that was the beginning of my social work career, really. Uh, I was offered a, a great job in Notting Hill, running a residential and daycare service. Um, I was seconded by the authority to um, to do my social work training and spent, I suppose, yes, I suppose most of the 80s until about 1987-88, um, running those two units, which was which was you know it was a really satisfying experience, and we were right on the edge of Portobello Road. So it was a very community-based place. And what we what we did there, because we could see that people who had come out of psychiatric hospitals that we were trying to rehouse initially came into a hostel. And from there they were supposed to be moved into their own flats. That's in in, in the days when local authorities were able to put people into the, their own accommodation. And what we could see was the isolation and the loneliness that often, you know, was the experience of those of those residents. And they would constantly come back to the hostel for meals, for company, for emotional support. So it was a kind of core cluster model, really. Um, and then... Um, in 1987, I think it was, it was very clear in the, that local authority and the neighbouring one, the emergence of um, HIV/AIDS. Um, I, I felt, as a, I was a social work manager at that time, I felt totally ill-equipped to deal with what was emerging. And um, I was, as as you said in the introduction, I was sent to 
not sent, but I went to work with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in Ireland and in America. And that was the most extraordinary experience. <clears throat> um, I learned such a lot from that. And I still, I still draw on those very life-changing experiences, really. And um, it was at that point I realised I wasn't going to be a social work manager any longer and decided that I would become a psychotherapist. So it kind of, in a way, it didn't feel like twists and turns. It felt like quite, you know, it's quite a, it was, it's just a journey that, 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 that offered up these opportunities, which I took really. So yeah, I ended up um, training as a therapist in, in Metamaya. I got to uh, uh, interject in, in rather a sort of self-centered way, um, hmm. Jeff, because um I was brought up in Watford, so um, right. Leaveson Hospital was something I knew about. Yeah. Um, although I think the only time I went there was they used to put on dances. Yeah, they and, did. Uh, and I went there once. I wasn't a great uh, enthusiast for dances, but I did go no. once. But the and interesting then... thing was they had two charge nurses who worked full time doing nothing but entertainments and holidays. Mm. That was their job. Mm. Yeah. It was. <laughs> those were the days. Yes, those were the days. <laughs> then I also worked in in Oxford, so I was working at Littlemore and yeah. the Warnford, so I was vaguely aware of Borough Court. Borough Court. And I also worked at St Charles Hospital, yeah. which can't be far away from where you were working. Well, it was. I, I was at the other end of Ladbroke Grove. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating area. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, Jeff. Mm. How did those experiences of being firstly a nurse and a social worker? How do you think those they've affected your practice as a psychotherapist? Have they enhanced it? Oh, I think so. I think so. Um, I I was very familiar with severe trauma. I think I think high levels of psychological and social difficulty. At a very young age I mean probably before I was really equipped to deal with it to be honest uh, but that was the nature of things and so I thought you know when when we started training and people would say oh you know you're, you're going to have to do um, you know a placement for example and people would get really anxious about meeting their first client and I used to think well what's to be scared about you're going to sit and you're going to listen you're going to give absolute wonderful attention to these people you know it's it's almost like it's so much better than what most people would expect in in our statutory services where there was much more of a kind of muddy agenda really so I just thought that you know I I, I didn't I, I thought that it was um the kind of attention that people would be receiving in those in those placements in those uh, organizations was going to be profound and significant for them so I suppose I thought my familiarity with um, with trauma my familiarity with with you know social deprivation with inequality all of those things um, I think gave me some resilience uh, to become a psychotherapist, really, and to become a psychotherapist for people who were very troubled. I mean, you know, my, in my private practice, I did work with quite a lot of people who who were very troubled folk. Um, 
And I, I think that came quite naturally to me, having spent 20 years working in those kind of situations. I had a familiarity with it. Um, and I, and I, I used to say uh, when I was a psychiatric nurse, I felt quite at home with people who were really deeply troubled. It, there was something about that, uh, which, you know, is, it's, it's, it's a good exploration to think. So why would you be at home in, in such a place? Um, but anyway, I, yeah, I think it, I think it equipped me quite well to be a, a psychotherapist. And I think a lot of psychotherapists haven't had that kind of early experience before they start to do their training. I wanted to ask you about that because I think the, I think the perception is that people working in private practice just work with people with fairly mild problems that might be referred to. You know, mm. people, it's not, not a very helpful or kind expression, but people refer to the worried well, don't they? Worried the idea well. being that people who come under NHS services might have more pain to process. Um, but actually, I think quite often the NHS is set up for people who've got more um, more focused, discrete problems. And actually, people who have more complex difficulties, a lot more trauma from childhood, often find that they can't access services via the statutory agency. So I, th- I imagine that a lot of psychotherapists are probably dealing with people with an awful lot of complex emotional pain and mental oh. distress. And I, I did wonder, you know, do, does the training really equip people for the level of psychopathology that they might encounter when they start working in private practice, do you think? I think it does because the requirement for students, well, I can't say it always does, but the requirement for students is that they will work in a community-based placement as part of their training. They'll have to do several hundred hours of practice and very often that will be in agencies like mind or in hospices or uh, in mental health settings sometimes the IAP service so yes I think most most trainee psychotherapists will have that kind of um, early experience working with people who are pretty unwell actually and there's no doubt that people like that find their way into private practice i think psychotherapists these days my experience as a supervisor is that psychotherapists are working with high levels of trauma suicidality high levels of depression anxiety that require quite a lot of communication with general practice or secondary mental health services so i do think an orientation in mental health is absolutely essential really it is actually a requirement of the ukcp which is the registering authority uh, that students have an orientation to um, mental health services and of course some some students will will have those kind of experiences in their past Uh, they may even have been service users as well as uh, employees in mental health services so yeah, I think it's I think it's a really important thing. grounding, I think. And as, as you say, I think a lot of people in private practice are working with high levels of high levels of trauma and difficulty. You've spent a significant amount of time working in forensic services, firstly in, in Broadmoor and certainly more recently in the, the FENS unit. What was it like for you to work in these kinds of total institution? What did you learn about yourself? 
Um, there, but for the grace of God, really, I thought um, when I, you know, when I worked in such places, what I what I found was that there were ordinary human beings who had done some extraordinary things. Um, people who had been vilified by society. I think one, what I learned about myself was that I came away having having reflected on my experience with a deep sense of gratitude a deep sense of humility and really the people I worked with were my teachers as much as I was their therapist I learned uh, well more probably than I was able to give in some ways I thought um what I what I also learned was about the the power of the systemic failure in our society and I, I know that um, it, it seemed to me that the, the the people we were working with, people in the prison, people in Broadmoor, had been on the receiving end of systemic failure on a massive scale in the family, the education service, social services, the care system, the criminal justice system, youth services, health, mental health services. It was like every system had failed in some ways to help these people before they ended up doing something terrible. Um, and it's really given me a perspective on mental health now, which is something to do with how we individualise problems in people, even though they are suffering from a lot of systemic failure, uh, whether it's economic, whether it's to do with oppression, uh, whether it's whether it's to do with employment, whether it's to do with the way that we construct family life in our society, all of these things contribute to people's mental ill health. But I think we tend to individualise it in the person. We say you've got a personality disorder, or you you you've got schizophrenia, or you've got bipolar disorder, or something like that, and we localise. The problem in the individual and of course the individual's experiencing the difficulty no question but i think there's something about how do we how do we think broader than that because very often people's suffering is much bigger than their individual experience that's such an important observation and as you were talking it reminded me of dan siegel's concept of mwe yeah, yeah and the idea that actually we're not it isn't you and I as separate individuals but there is something that happens between people as well and um, it does seem as if service delivery is too often focused on the individuals even at a group level it's often it's still it's a group of individuals rather than thinking how things function as a, I know that's not true of all all um, group methodologies but I think there are groups that that run where people are really a collection of individuals rather than thinking about the the group as a as a whole mm. i think i think we're i think fundamentally we're quite tribal and i think that's one of the reasons why people when they come into psychotherapy training they tend to stay in it is because they even though they're being educated in certain theories and ideas about the mind um, they're also in a group of people like-minded people who they're sharing their lives with and it's very powerful. And I do think there's something that 
I don't want to be romantic about the past, but I imagine that sitting around a fire in a circle is something human beings have been doing for years and as a way of attending to the needs of the tribe. And um, we don't do that now. We don't do that now. We have very few spaces in which people can really connect and break down their isolation. So how have your forensic experiences and these observations about the systemic failure, how has that contributed and shaped your practice since? Have they been relevant for the work that you've been doing since then? Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, obviously, you have to pay attention to the distress of the individual. But I think it's very helpful for people to understand that maybe the difficulties they're experiencing are bigger than them and their immediate experiences, that they are the result of political decisions, they're a result of our economic, socio-economic history, um, to do with um, the way that we have developed this kind of economic system that we live in. And I think it's helpful for people to to have, I think not only helpful, I think it's essential for people who are in training to understand, for example, the history of capitalism or imperialism. And because it's, it's, so, uh, it's so much part of what we interject as young people. I mean, when, when I was a kid, if I would go out into the garden, I didn't think, why is there a fence between me and my neighbour? It was there. And it demonstrated the fact that we own that bit of land. We've interjected land ownership as part of what's normal, whereas many societies would have seen that that was very abnormal. And if we own the land, we can do what we like to it. Um, but, but these things, they, we need to be educated around these things. We need to have these things pointed out. And they're not really historically part of psychotherapy training. But once, but once we start to think about the economic system in which we live and the casualties as well as the benefits of it, uh, then I think people can have a wider perspective. I think it's a bit more, I think it's freeing for people. I think they feel more liberated when you can say, you know, this is bigger than you. This is bigger than you. You are part of something much bigger and uh, you are experiencing, sometimes you're experiencing the downside of it, you know. You're talking it's making me think we've got a, a conversation scheduled with John Adlam and Chris Scanlon talking about society and I think mm. some of these things themes will come up during that conversation don't you David? Mm. I'm sure I'm sure they will yeah there's a lot of parallels there. Mm. Mm. It's fact, interestingly enough it was my social work training was really very systemically focused um, and really, they would see that the uh, the systems would be the target of intervention rather than the actual individual social work clients. But I mean, it's also got its limitations as a theory, um, but it's 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 good to have that perspective that it's not just individuals that are uh, ill or pathological; that it's actually they are they are experiencing something a wider failure. And I think that was something that we became very obvious in the prison yeah. absolutely so um, it's lovely listening to you jeff you come across as being 
you're very wise and 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 it must be a sort of wisdom that you've yeah garnered over the the years the years of experience you you've just been uh, describing and that almost makes my next question you know a bit superfluous but we did want to draw attention to your experience as a as a, a supervisor because mm. you're you're really very experienced as a, a trainer and a, a mm. supervisor spent many years working at metanoia and mm. the link center mm. what is it you enjoy about you know working with others in this way oh so many things but i think you know broadly um to make a contribution to the next generation and i think we all need to do that i think and i think if we can't do that um then 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 we suffer as a result actually i think there is something about how do we, how do we make a contribution and i think everyone has their own unique and individual contribution to make it mine happened to be as a, as a psychotherapy tutor um and um it, it's it's such a privilege to see people coming in at one end really wanting to make a career because most psychotherapy students want to make a career change they're disillusioned or unhappy they've become successful very often but they're not happy and um so so they've bought into what society's version of success is but not their own and so very often people come in sort of psychotherapy training in their 40s or older and they um yeah they want to make they want to make a difference they want they want to have a different kind of life um and there's nothing more rewarding than seeing people come in then go through the process see them change see them grow see them develop a practice or you know work in the nhs or in other positions where they're more congruent they're feeling congruent with who they are it's like this is what I, this is what i'm here to do i'm here to be of service i'm here to also take care of myself and i think the majority of people who come into the training um will would say that they enormously benefit from it whether they ultimately decide to have a full practice or to give up their previous careers sometimes people run you know i know people who are working in the city and practicing as psychotherapists as well so it's like you don't necessarily have to give up what you did beforehand but um there's nothing more satisfying to me than seeing growth you know no. it's beautiful so how can we get more psychotherapists prepared to work in the prison service and Jeff, because well, you know a lot of people because i worked in the prison a lot of people have asked me how do i do that how do, how do how do i get to work in a prison how do i because i'd really love to do that and i have to caution them to be honest because i think that i had the privilege of working in a huge team you know i think there were about 18 psychologists and psychotherapists you know working in a team that's a very different experience from being a lone practitioner attached to the healthcare unit where nobody really understands what counseling or psychotherapy is about uh, where there is no support available to 
the practitioner, really, uh, where um, the people in prison could easily be moved uh, without any notice, not being able to say goodbye. You know, the, the prisons are a very difficult place to provide therapy. So if they're not, I would say to people, if you're not working in a team that understands what you're doing, it's probably going to be a very difficult experience and it could end up being disappointing. And I've certainly experienced, I've known people who've done that and um, it doesn't work. So I, I, I do say to people, if you're going to work in a prison and it's going to be an effective and pleasure, not pleasurable, I wouldn't say pleasurable experience, but an enriching experience, then I think you need to be part of the team with, with a philosophy and an ethos, which is, what there was at the FENS unit, there was a, a very clear philosophy about how to work with people. It was well rooted in good theory and the support was always there. So if, if I'd experienced a really traumatic or difficult time, there would be someone that I could talk to immediately. That doesn't happen in private practice, of course. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I do think uh, I... I do think that nobody needs psychotherapy more than more than prisoners or people in prison, I should say. Um, but they're very difficult environments in which to provide it safely, I think. Um, yeah, you're quite right. I absolutely agree with you to, 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 to bring that warning. And of course, you were working um, within a, a team that uh, had... Uh, terrific levels of support for mm. both the prisoners and for the staff yeah working absolutely there. so um, and even then it was very tough mm, mm. but i was not isolated um i had support and 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 that was that was priceless really good thanks very much mm. indeed for that mm, mm. can you tell us a bit about the uh, the work of the link center so we're um, a medium-sized counselling and psychotherapy organisation in Sussex. We have about uh, 130 students uh, at different stages of training. Um, I would say that our ethos is one of social responsibility, so we're very keen to promote um, good practice and good thinking around anti-oppressive practice around environmental issues, around making a positive contribution to society. Um, I am there with my daughter, who's one of the partners. There's one of the previous, the previous partner is, um, uh, is, is still there as well. So, so, so one of the partners left, and there are now two, my, my daughter and myself, and uh, Mark, who was one of the originators. And, um, we try to be really student focused. We want to make a difficult training as easy as possible for people. Um, we don't want to put arbitrary uh, goals or, or restrictions on people. We try to be student centered. We're trying to, to yes, yeah, so open up the training to people who might find it difficult in a more um in a more uh, demanding environment 
obviously people have to fulfill all the requirements of training which are themselves very demanding they have to do that and quite rightly but within that we try to be as flexible as possible so that if people need to take time out of their training or if people need um, a particular kind of support whether it was um, you know emotional or financial or whatever within the constraints that there are uh, we try to provide that so we try to be a very student-centered organization and we operate from a beautiful uh, country environment in Plumpton uh, from the agricultural college there so we're surrounded by hills and sheep and horses and you know it's a it's a it's a wonderful setting to work in but um, yeah that's that's the link center really I think we've got um, eight or nine staff many of whom are psychotherapists and also clinical psychologists or counseling psychologists as well so broad range of tutors thank you so mm. quite, quite a contrast to Whitemore then quite a contrast to Whitemore yeah when I was working at Whitemore you know sometimes I would when I was working at Metanoia as well sometimes I'd go in and they'd laugh at me because I'd say you know it, it, you know they said there are no alarm bells here not the alarm bells are not going to go off in the middle of a staff meeting and stuff like that because I was sort of <laughs> It, there was such a contrast between yes. between the two, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that in itself is very interesting, isn't it? What, what is the effect of yeah, a, a different kind of atmosphere in one place compared to another? But that's something to think about for the future, I think. I think so. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that... Um, going into a prison it's like even though the individual people there um when you go into the prison um will not necessarily be um paranoid the system is and so as you go into the prison you are you are not trusted you will be searched you'll be x-rayed you'll be scanned um, and so, you know, just the process of going in means that you've gone through a system that says we don't trust you. And of course, when you go into an organisation like uh, like Metanoia, you know, you've got your phone in your pocket and you can talk to who you like. I mean, it's like there's a sense of trust in the place, which, of course, in Whitemore, there isn't and, and, and understandably so. But, yeah, it's a very different atmosphere to work in. And I do yeah. think it has an impact it reminded me when you were speaking of a time when um, Des McVeigh brought a multi-pack of Mars bars in and yeah. got reported to security because they couldn't. They thought if he was bringing all these Mars bars in, he must be bribing people rather yeah. than they just enjoyed Mars bars for his break and it was easier to take one yeah. big bag in. Yes, and, and, you know, you'd go through, you'd put your stuff on the X-ray machine, you'd be wanded down, you'd then go through several locked doors to pick up your keys to then get into the courtyard you you have to use your fingerprint to get in and then the first gate you come to somebody says can I see your ID and it's it's like I've just been through all of this and now you want me to show the ID to the camera is it, it was kind of it was over the top yeah well maybe it wasn't no I, I'm sure a security expert would say to me it wasn't over the top it felt like that to me but it is supposed to be one of the highest secure prisons in the country. So, 
But it has oh, yeah. powerful, powerful influence. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. It's like the intangible. I mean, the effect on me is that whenever I leave a prison, I'm always convinced that the air is different. Yes. And, and of course, it's it's not really different, you know, from 20 metres away. But no. so it's a psychological effect, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it, it's uh, the prison has been very um, prevalent in my dream life ever since I left it. Without a doubt, mm. uh, I often dream about the prison. Not always bad dreams, um, but it's a very frequent feature of my dream life, for sure. Yeah, I found that I used to have to go home and and have a shower as soon as I got home. And certainly, you know, like working in an older Victorian prison, like Leeds Prison, which I worked in for a while, you just felt absolutely filthy whilst you were walking mm. around mm. inside with very little fresh air. Well, at least in Whitemore, there was, you know, more more windows and more ventilation but yeah yeah obviously it's something going on at a psychological level that need to wash when you get home Mm. Mm. well it Mm. is striking isn't it because they have all these men employed as cleaners and yet the prevailing sense is of yeah dirt really Uh, it's extraordinary and that's both a reality i think um and again a psychological effect well, I think more, certainly it was inspected this week, wasn't it, and was referred to as the dirtiest prison the inspector had ever ever seen. So maybe, maybe our experience of Whitemore was was that it was you know that maybe there was a reality to that as well. Right, I didn't. Um, it, it, Whitemore never struck me as being particularly dirty, but I think institutions that are very crowded you know, where people aren't, you know, regularly showering and washing and wearing nice clothes. There is a sense of grubbiness about it. Um, It was certainly true of any institution I've worked in, really. Yeah. So moving on slightly, Mm. um, we, um, uh, although we've just now been talking about oppressive uh, institutions, Mm. and, and we often talk with psychologists and psychotherapists who are thinking of leaving or mm. are leaving the NHS mm. and the prison services because of the difficulty in working for an oppressive and uh, bureaucratic uh, regime. And this this means that they have to become much more uh, business focused themselves in, in, in their career. Mm. How, how do you become more business focused in a oh. way that still preserves your own values do you think okay so i suppose i suppose you have to you know we we operate within a within a capitalist society and so if you're going to be in private practice and you're going to run your own business you're going to have to have some degree of competence and accountability as a, as a self-employed person I think being self-employed for me gave me a lot of flexibility. Um, I wasn't constrained by who I could work with. I wasn't constrained um, to make decisions about what I would charge people. I mean, uh, there would be times, I think, there are often times I was working with a supervisee yesterday who's just decided she's going to offer free therapy to someone who is 
in a severe mental health crisis. She's lost her income. She's applying for universal credit. I mean, it won't ultimately be sustainable, but she's able to make that decision for herself, um, saying, well, I'm, gonna, I'm going to work with this person for at least three months, you know, and give them the opportunity to come through their crisis. You can make those kind of decisions. Um, you are obviously accountable to the to the registering authorities that you're a member of and to their codes of ethics. Um, but I think, you know, working privately, it does give you a degree of flexibility uh, that you certainly don't have if you're working in the NHS or the prison service. I found the bureaucracy quite stifling, actually, particularly working for the NHS and the prison. <laughs> I mean, it was a double whammy, really, and there wasn't much kind of joined up thinking about what needed to be done. So I did find that extremely challenging, I have to say. Uh, and it wasn't something that I missed afterwards. So, yeah, so I suppose we have a freedom and in places like the Link Centre, we can make we can make policy and financial decisions very quickly and implement them very quickly. There is a high level of flexibility in that. So. Yeah, I, I, I think it's sad that, um, that there is such a high level of bureaucracy in those institutions. Mm. Oh, I think in society generally. I mean, just trying to get a bank account these days is <laughs> it's not it's not like it used to be when I was at Borough Court and just managed to get through to the chief nurse by making a phone call. I mean, it's like, you know, society's not like that anymore. You know, we are in a very bureaucratized society, and I'm not quite sure why that. I guess it's to do with power and control, ultimately. Um, I don't know. But, uh, I used to think when I worked for a local authority, I, I thought, you know, as a social worker, I was there to really make a difference to the clients' lives and so on and so forth. And I thought to myself... But if this whole institution was set up to make sure that only only the very most deserving people got a little bit of help, suddenly you could see it as very effective because uh, it wasn't really there to help and liberate. It was there to ensure that only the smallest amount of money went to the smallest number of people as possible. And then you could see how effective it was. Um, yeah, anyway, that's me being a little bit... <laughs> well, <laughs> you've, you've raised a really interesting question, which is why have ch things changed mm. so much in the past 50 years mm. or so, I suppose it mm. is. And why is it that the security industry is such a major part of our activities these days? So much resource goes into things that are termed security. Anyway, we don't have time to talk about that. No. Now, no. You've, you've got this knack, Jeff, of, of raising these very interesting questions. Yeah. yeah, I think there's been a lot, obviously, you know, a lot of it is defensive practice, isn't it? A lot of it is to ensure that, you know, the organisation won't be, won't be seen as uh, negligent or, you know, vulnerable to legal action and so on and so forth. And I do understand, you know, like, um, you know, there have been some very high profile cases where where young people have been abused or even murdered, you know, by people who who shouldn't have been working 
So I suppose a lot of that bureaucracy has come about to try and safeguard people, but it also has a stultifying effect as well. Um, it's, it's hard, to, I suppose it's hard to get the balance right. And I think we live in a more frightened society now. I don't know whether society is more dangerous than it was. I suspect it's not. But people's level of fear, I think, is much higher. Mm. Like, um, you know, I was out playing all day when I was a kid, you know. That's what we did. We went out and played all day. We we had a huge amount of freedom. I don't think children have that kind of freedom. Maybe they do in some rural areas, but by and large, I think city kids don't have that kind of freedom. So I think people are more frightened. I think I think there's more um exposure to the news and to media. Now um, yeah. It's yeah, I think people are more scared, more anxious. <clears throat> So moving on slightly, mm. um, we, we, we've encountered lots of discussions with people about oppressive practices mm. in, in, in mental health. Do you think psychotherapy training was a bit controlling and oppressive at, at one time? And, and do you think it's changed? I think it's slowly changing. I think that the history of psychotherapy was European, white, and patriarchal. And we really needed to understand that, not just take it, you know, take it as a given. Um, and that it was reflective of the kind of society that it was emerging from. So in that sense, um, I think it was unconsciously oppressive. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, inherently uh, in psychotherapy training that means that you're going to be a good trainer or a good resource in terms of anti-oppressive practice, anti-racist practice. Um, there's nothing in psychotherapy training really that equips people to do that. And I do think it's a separate job to when you're training people to work with the public um, and work with all sections of society, not just a privileged uh, sections of society, that there is a responsibility on us. And I'm sure the UKCP is taking this seriously now, but only I would say in the last five or probably five years, it's become much more a focus of attention. Uh, but I, I'm not I'm not convinced of certainly the psychotherapy training I had would not have equipped me to do anti-oppressive practice training. Not at all. Um, I think it's more it's coming more to the foreground now, for sure. Mm. But it's slow. It's like trying to, you know, turn around a juggernaut. It's not going to happen overnight. And in the meantime, I think we are still stuck in a fairly heteronormative culture which makes me means that people a white heteronormative culture which means that a lot of people feel marginalized in the profession by the profession some of their clients do as well so we've really got a lot of work to do i think yes and and my kind of glimpses into the world of Twitter suggests to me that it's a really difficult discussion to have. Um, really quite frightening to join in those debates sometimes. 
Um, anyway. You mean, I'm curious about that when you say it's fright, frightening to join in the debates. I can I get, I get it, but uh, like, what's the fear? What's the fear about, do you think? Well, I think the fear, as I picked it up, is about um, being uh, piled on. Um, and, and, and so the anxiety about being piled on makes people cautious about what they they say because mm. there's there's such a powerful voice oh absolutely and and the powerful voices don't always join in an argument absolutely. they join in a slanging match yeah and there have to be spaces for people not to know for people to be able to air their uncertainties their own personal prejudices um you know their their doubts they're challenging of the politically correct culture. There have to be spaces where people can do that. Otherwise, they'll be frightened, they'll shut down, and it will be an unhelpful experience for all concerned. So I hope that um, supervision can provide people with those kind of safe spaces where we can deal with our uncertainty and say, you know, I really don't understand. I don't get this. I don't understand it. I don't agree with it, you know. I think there have to be spaces for people yeah. to do that. Okay, so Jeff, since your psychotherapy training, um, you've more recently gone even further, and you've trained <laughs> um, as a referent. Why? Why? Why was that important to you? Funny. Um, it, again, it's sort of it's a move. It was a move on. I remember. I think I probably left the prison just about and I was in a bit of a void. And um, I don't know, I said to myself, I've spent a lot of my life being scared of things that never happen. It's like that that's a quote from Mark Twain, you know, I've, and a lot of our fantasies about what might happen to us and so on and so forth. They don't come true. And when, when we have to deal with when the fantasy does come true, we have to deal with reality anyway, not a fantasy. And the little voice in me said, you should have had more faith. And actually, it took me right back to working with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a person of great faith. And she really included spirituality in, in, in the psychotherapy practice. Not, not didn't change the practice particularly, but just said that if you are emotionally um, well and physically well, um, your spirituality will will just come to you. It's like you don't need to pursue it or do anything about it particularly. So anyway, I um I was watching YouTube. I saw a woman called Miranda McPherson who um talked, I thought she was a brilliant spiritual teacher. She wasn't religious, but she was definitely into faith. She said she was coming to the Netherlands to do a retreat. I looked in my diary, I was free. I did the retreat with her in the Netherlands, and that was a very, very powerful experience. <clears throat> very powerful experience. And she had set up the One Spirit Interfaith Foundation in London uh, some 25 years ago. I looked at the syllabus and I thought, this looks really fascinating. I'm just going to get a taste of all these ancient wisdoms that, you know, have been so sort of marginalized or devalued in our current society. So we looked at earth-based practices, you know, like the worship of the earth, the wind and the fire, and, uh, 
the water. We looked at Christianity, we looked at Judaism, we looked at Islam, we looked at uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and, and they were just such rich ancient wisdoms that I, and I just think, God, you know, some of the stuff that we know about human beings have been known for thousands of years. And it gave me a, a meta perspective on human beings, really, in a way. It took, me, took it away from the clinical, took it away from the clinical and very specific cultural um, context within which psychotherapy I've been doing takes place. Uh, and gave me a much broader perspective. And I think one of the things that I realized is how we have devalued ancient wisdom. There's a, a writer called Sabani Selassie. She writes about epistemicide or the killing off of ancient wisdom and saying, you know, that in our sort of fairly patriarchal, arrogant society, we have dismissed quite contemptuously what people knew to be true about human beings. I'm not you say I'm not trying to be rosy about the past, but things like meditation and yoga, it's like they're so it's becoming so much more mainstream again. People have been doing those for thousands of years. They were seen as mindfulness practice was seen as a really important contribution to well-being, you know. Um so I absolutely, I abs it filled a gap for me. It filled, it filled the gap for me in a way. Um, it, it certainly wasn't religious in any sense, and I'm not religious. I don't follow any religion. But I do think there are some fundamental principles within the spiritual, within the spiritual curriculum, if you like, which are the centrality of love uh interconnectivity like you know you know when dan siegel you said was talking about them we it's like technotan talks about interbeing and actually we are all even though we feel separated and isolated as human beings actually we're not and i always say to my students you've only got to switch the light on to realize how ultimate you know how ultimately you're utterly dependent not only on a whole load of people that have helped to make that happen but their ancestors as well going back to the beginning of time i mean there is something about being disconnected which i think is a function of our current system disconnects us from each other and that's why i think uh sort of you know really kind of reconnecting with what we've known for so long is um is very important and i think i think it's um well for me it 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 filled some missing pieces of the jigsaw that psychotherapy didn't help me with um it was a curriculum that it was it was a personal development curriculum but it wasn't um it wasn't clinical in that sense it was much more political actually um so yeah I, I i'm very pleased that i did it so what advice jeff would you give to listeners about how to maintain the integrity of themselves and their practice 
well obviously i think you have to follow you have to follow the codes of ethics i think you really need to be in supervision all your life i think you need to be committed to continuing professional development all your life i don't think it's something that ends at the end of a four-year training uh, there are new ideas and things coming on stream now that makes my training completely out of date particularly around things like neuroscience, polyvagal theory, you know, working with the central nervous system, all of those things. There's so much more foreground now. So I think we have to keep updating ourselves. All It's a lifelong journey. Um, that's the first thing I would say. So supervision, continuing professional development, but also what they say in the Code of Ethics is that you have to take care of yourself i would go further and say you have to love yourself i think if you can't love yourself how are you going to really be available to work with other people it's like my favorite one of my favorite speakers maya angelou she said never trust a naked man who offers you a shirt it's like how 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 can you take love from someone who clearly doesn't love themselves i just think it's I think it's a problem. So I think we have an ethical responsibility to take really good care of our souls and our bodies and our minds and our hearts. And that's a challenge in a world where there's so much suffering. Because it sounds like a very selfish thing to be doing. To, to take really good care of yourself when, you know, there's so many terrible things going on. It's like, how do we, how do we be in human suffering without getting sunk by it? And I think the way we do that is to grieve. I think if we could be alongside people who are suffering, I think we need to be affected by it. I think we need to feel the grief and the sadness of that. And we also have to take care of ourselves. Otherwise, we become, we become sunk in the suffering and the despair ourselves and we become ineffective. I think it's a very difficult but important line to tread. Such really important advice there, Jeff, in terms of um, how to look after yourself mm -mm. as part of that, which... Um, we have yeah. to do it. Who are we not to? It's the only body we've got, you know. It's a gift. It was given to us. And, and uh, yeah, we have to take care of it if we can, you know. Seems like yeah. a good note to end on, Jeff. Thank you very much for sharing all the wisdom with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been really lovely to talk to you. So Thanks. terrific conversation, Jeff, and really nice to meet you. I can't quite understand why we haven't met before. So. No, we've been we've been uh, in <laughs> such similar places. So thanks very much indeed. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Naomi. It's really good to see you again. It was indeed.